It is my great joy to have the privilege to bring God's Word to you today. And today's text comes from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew, chapter 15. Our text is in verses 21 through 28. But I do believe that it is helpful for us, helpful for us to start reading at the beginning of chapter 15 just to get a sense of the context of the passage, what is happening before our text. So let us then turn to God's Word and begin reading at the beginning of chapter 15, the Gospel according to Matthew. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother... What would you, you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And now we come to our text for this morning. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 
Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us then bow our heads before him in prayer. Our gracious God, one thing we ask of you this morning, that as we hear your word read, and then as we hear it preached, that our hearts would not remain as the same as we came in this morning. Father, may the eyes of our hearts be opened. May the Spirit work mightily in us, uncovering to us the secrets of your word, the truth of your love and your mercy. Lord, may we be not only encouraged, but also challenged, rebuked if needed, comforted, Lord, from your word. May we delight in Jesus Christ as he is put on display before our eyes in the living, infallible words of scriptures this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Now, I remember a couple years ago, while still a seminary student for my uh, ministerial degree for the Masters of Divinity, I came across uh, an article titled, How to Stay Christian in Seminary. I know, sounds like a paradox, right? But it's more relevant than we would like to admit. But here's what the author says at one point. He says, seminary is dangerous. It can turn the word of God into a textbook and a zealous disciple into a pompous egghead. The very tool intended to bolster faith and love for God can create cold, listless hearts. In other words, what he's getting at, and unfortunately I have to speak here from experience, it is all too easy for a seminary student to mistake knowledge about God for knowledge of God. Knowledge of theology, of doctrine, of confessional standards, for knowledge, personal, experiential knowledge of God as living and as ruling over our lives. We can compare this to something that I'm sure happens to all of us is when we know someone or of someone, maybe someone we work with, maybe someone uh, we go to school with, maybe even someone that we worship together on Sundays and come to church together on Sundays, we know of them and we mistake that for knowledge. We know about them and we mistake that for knowledge of them. We, we think that knowing of their existence is equal to knowing who they actually are. Spending time around each other is equated to getting to know one another. 
And so also in, in seminary, theological growth does not guarantee spiritual growth. And since, however, this is not a matter exclusive to seminary students, but it is a fact, in fact uh, an issue of human heart, the problem is not limited to theologians, to theology students then, but to everyone in this place, in this room, and beyond. Whenever our affections for God struggle to keep up with our knowledge about God, the challenge always exists. And so all of us today and here are prone to make the same mistake. In fact, as we read the context of our passage today, we certainly see that the religious elites of Jesus' day took pride in their knowledge and thought it amounted to a lot. What's interesting is that Jesus' disciples, although to a different degree, were not immune to the same temptation, and so neither are we. And for that reason, as we look at this beautiful and I would even dare to say provocative text in Matthew 15, what we find there is a, uh, a timely, sober, and yet encouraging reminder in the form of this Canaanite woman of the nature and the kind of faith that is great in God's eyes, irrespective of how much we know or even of the position we go hold before the eyes of other believers in, in, in uh, the gathering of God's people. This is not to say that knowledge, that growth if in, in theological, doctrinal, confessional knowledge is unimportant. Absolutely. It has its place. It has its place. We are called to grow in discernment and understanding and yet, if that's all we do, if, that's, if, if factual knowledge, if precise formulations, if theological language and vocabulary is all that we collect, we are missing out on that which is most crucial to, our, to the lives of faith. And so I'd like to invite us this morning to look at this passage under five brief points Five headings, five attributes of what true faith looks like. True faith is humble, it is desperate, it is persistent, wise, and finally it is a faith that is answered. So first, faith is humble. Now, Jesus being rejected by these religious elites, as we've seen in verse 21, he retreats north. He enters the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, and this is a territory of, of Canaan, uh, of his, uh, a historically pagan enemy land. This is where nations lived that were always at odds with God's people. In their eyes, these were the nations that were the source of defilement. And yet it is precisely here that Jesus may meets this Canaanite woman. It is precisely here that this interaction, this a conversation unfolds. Matthew writes, and behold, in verse 22, and behold a Canaanite woman. 
The little phrase, and behold, is setting us up for something unusual, for an event that it could be spoken of as marvelous. Something great is about to happen. And indeed, here's a pagan female about to approach a religious teacher in a world and in a time that is profoundly and fundamentally patriarchal. You see, this woman, both religiously and socially, sat on the lowest rank, rung of the societal ladder at the time. And in the eyes both of the Pharisees and other religious leaders of Israel, and then uh, in the eyes of Jesus' disciples, she is nothing but a dirty Gentile, unworthy to approach this teacher, this Jesus. Culturally, she is an enemy of God. And yet, what is so surprising here is that she seems to understand that. And not only understand that, she does not shy from such a perception and such a status. She comes to Jesus. She uh, comes in a posture that we must observe a posture of humility. She's crying after him, and she's caring very little about how others perceive her. She calls him, O Lord, son of David. And now we must, while we must admit that it's uncertain how much she actually understood of the titles that she's ascribing to Jesus, nonetheless, what we have to see is that the least she's doing is trying to approach him in the most reverent way known to her. In verse 26, she comes and kneels before him. And so uh, the, the picture that we're getting is one of no presumption, one of no demand, one of no entitlement. Now, in, in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 17, we read this passing comment. And he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. And so what we see here is that other people from that same region clearly have seen Jesus, uh, have heard his ministry, and probably uh, at that time had benefited from his ministry. And so surely the Canaanite woman had heard that Jesus had healed others from that region, and yet, as she approaches him, there is not a hint of demand in her. Putin author uh, and theologian Matthew Henry writes this about, about this text. He says, It was a wonder that she did not fly off in the fret and say, Is this he that is so famed for clemency and tenderness? Have so many been heard and answered by him as they talk? And must I be the first rejected suitor? Why so distant to me, if it be true that he has stooped so to so many? These are the words that we should expect in this situation. And yet there is none of that. This woman embodies the humility of faith. Unlike the Pharisees and the scribes earlier in the chapter who valued their own position, who valued uh, their extensive knowledge and upholding of tradition, unlike even like uh, 
Jesus' disciples who, though believers, still esteemed their national identity. Unlike the people from Jesus' hometown who just uh, two chapters earlier in Matthew 13 rejected Jesus and did so on the basis of his unimpressive familial ties. You see, this woman shows us that humility is the starting position and the constant companion of faith. No one comes to believe Christ without first acknowledging and owning up their desperate, sinful, judgment-deserving estate. And yet it's still, as I observe my own heart and, uh, and, and those around me as me and my wife, we raise children, it never ceases to amaze me just how quick our human heart is to measure itself against others. It seems like however much we pursue humility, however much we desire to have it, our heart is a factory of pride. We lift ourselves up by putting others down, don't we? And still, as we look at that, as we recognize that in our hearts, we need the reminder that we hear from Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. This is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, speaking God's word to them, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you that he chose you. We begin humble to stay humble. We do not begin by, with God's grace then to turn around and start, say, start measuring ourselves and saying, well, this is why God loves me. Because I'm good. Because I'm generous. Because I'm righteous. No. The realization of our neediness for grace is our daily companion. If we are to feed on Christ daily, humility is the tableware with which we do so. And so true faith is humble. The second thing we see is that true faith is that marked by desperation. True faith is desperate. Now, as we look at this text, we acknowledge that one of the, one of the challenge, most challenging, one of the hardest things in life is for a parent to see their child suffer, to see their child fight for their lives, and in some instances to see their child die. How helpless must a parent feel when there's nothing they themselves can do to alleviate the pain, to alleviate the suffering, to prevent death. My cousin-in-law, my, my, my wife's cousin and his wife, they have three living children now, but their firstborn, she passed away when she was only three year, uh, weeks old. And to this day, I cannot remember uh, a more grief-filled funeral 
a weightier sense of hopelessness and sorrow. If anything can make you desperate in this life, it is your children's state and your children's well-being. And we can acknowledge this even if we don't have children. We recognize this around us. And so in the person of this Canaanite woman, we get this sense of desperation. She's approaching Jesus, not for herself, not for her well-being, but for that of her daughters. A daughter who was oppressed by the demon. The woman knew that Jesus was her only hope. Mark, in a parallel account of this story, just to convey that sense of desperation, tells us that Jesus entered a house, this is in Mark 7, and he did not want anyone to know, yet the woman came and found him and addressed him nonetheless, knowing that there might not be another chance. Our most sincere, our most eager cries, Lord, have mercy on me, they come when? They come when we are most oppressed, when we are most pressured by the weight of this life, by the weight of suffering, by the weight of sin, death, and darkness, don't we? Such is the nature of coming to faith. The road to salvation often leads through a crisis of utter despair. Such is also the way of growing in faith, where we go through seasons of darkness and suffering of seeming uh, silence from the Lord so that our inner being would be recalibrated, so that we would be turned back to the one who really matters in our lives, so that that the desperate need that we always have would be drawn to our attention again and reminded to us so that we run to the feet of our Lord. Have you ever had this experience in your life where you're, you're, you, you're about to sin, and you know that however hard you try, there's no way of resisting it. That however much you try to push it, postpone it, that it will eventually you will succumb to it. And how great it is to experience in that desperate state that someone can take that and turn around that around that someone dying for us redeeming us for our inability to fight and overcome sin then gives us new life enabling us day by day to say no giving us power to stand up to that of which we were slaves But what this woman embodies is that urgency, that desperation that we are so prone to forget, especially as things go, are going well, and especially if we, in our hearts, function out of this self-righteousness. Then when I'm doing well, everything's going well, I feel well. It's easy to forget 
when we think that we are doing great, that spiritually everything's as it should be and better, it's easy to forget that our reality every day is that we are desperate, desperate for Christ. True faith is desperate faith. True faith, thirdly, is a persistent faith. As we continue looking at our text, what do we see in this woman? We don't see someone who simply asks, makes a petition, and then goes away. No, we see someone who continues pleading with Christ. The, the, the imperfect uh, verb in the Greek original, translated as was crying in verse 22, suggests that she made repeated petitions. In fact, that is supported by the reaction of Jesus' disciples, who uh, pleaded with the Lord to answer her. And sure, they did that because they cared for her, right? No, as we look at our text, we see that she was driving them mad. She would not give up. The whole passage, in fact, is a structure around her requests and Jesus' responses. Her initial cry is cries met with his silence. The disciples plea on her behalf, whatever their motives, is uh, invokes Jesus' missional statement in verse 24, where he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And finally, the episode climaxes as she comes and kneels before him. And gets vindicated. Isn't that an illustration of Jesus' own words just uh, several chapters ago in, in Matthew 7, verse 7, where he says, Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Faith is marked by persevering prayer with confidence, not in who we are and how much we know and how much have we have accomplished, but in the character of God. Who is, who he is, what he has promised, what he has achieved in Christ. However little this uh, theology this Canaanite woman knew, and she couldn't have known um, much by any standard, she had this basic faith. The culture around us also values persistence and tenacity. It says, never give up. Pursue your dreams. Uh, everything is possible if you believe. Find the strength within. These and other slogans are meant to inspire us, to persevere, to empower us to go on. However, the source of this persistence is found within. And what happens when we're called to look to ourselves to find the strength to go on, well, what if there's always a possibility of running out of steam? There's always a possibility of waking up one morning and realizing that you're empty. And that becomes our greatest fear. That one day, the call to look inside for more strength will yield in nothing because as we look inside, we find that we've run out. 
The Canaanite woman, in, uh, on the other hand, in our passage, fuels her persistence with something completely different, something that's not within, but something that's outside of her. It is the unchanging nature of God that she's resting on. If he is good, his goodness doesn't change. If he is gracious, his grace does not run out. If he is able to answer her, his ability does not shrink. Her tenacity is fueled by a source that does not deplete. And she boldly and persistently approaches Christ because her faith rests not on who she is, but on him, on his ability and God's grace in the person of Jesus. That's what she's holding tied to. That is who he is. True faith is a faith of persistence. True faith is also a uh, faith marked by wisdom. One thing that really stands out in this passage is the interaction between Christ and this woman, the way he responds to her, and then the way she responds to him. And in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25, a famous and well-known passage, Paul writes that God chooses to reveal his infinite wisdom through the cross, the symbol of weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world. And the genius of God's redemptive plan lies in the fact that such wisdom can only be uh, accessed by a spirit-transformed and spirit-enlightened believing heart, a kind of heart that this Canaanite woman demonstrates to have, is demonstrating to, to, to actually have, to possess. She is marked by this godly wisdom. In verse 24 of our passage, we read, He, Jesus, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, in the context of this woman's plea, that the, the sensitivity that her situation invokes, that her daughter is suffering, knowing that Jesus, elsewhere in the Bible, says, expresses this care and love for children and then for the little ones in general. How tender, how sensitive he is towards them. In light of all that, we know about him and about this situation. His words in verse 24 sound harsh. They seem on the surface to condone national superiority. I see a racist. Many today would be tempted, indeed are tempted, to interpret this passage this way. Yet, as we look at this text, it is imperative that we understand Jesus' statement, not as that, but in light of what's known as the redemptive historical perspective. When Jesus said that, says that his mission is to the sheep of the house of Israel, he's not saying that he's only here to save Israelites. But he's saying that he comes at a certain time in God's historical plan of redemption. And that in that time, his work is to bring the gospel, the good news, to the Jews, so that later on he will enable them to go forth into the world and to bring the same message of hope to the Gentiles. It is not to say the Gentiles are off, that it is off the table for the Gentiles. It is to say that now is one stage of the plan of redemption, and that another stage will come, and this stage is preoccupied with 
the people of God, the, the nation of Israel. He clearly states it in Matthew 10, verse 18. He says, and you will be dragged, um, dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He says that this is coming, that the Gentiles will have their time. Nonetheless, now is the time for Jews, the Jews. The point is reiterated, reiterated in verse 26. He says, the children of the house are fed first. Now is their time to eat. This is their food. This point, however, the way it is phrased, it is phrased in such a manner so that any human wisdom would immediately be exposed. This is the beauty of this passage. This is the, the provocative nature of this passage. If there was but a hint of self-pity, of entitlement, of pride, of unbelief in this Canaanite woman, Jesus' words would have repulsed her. Instead, in verse 27, a truly remarkable thing happens. This pagan woman, who up to that point maybe have her, had heard an infinitesimal amount of a fraction of truth compared to the disciples who were bombarded with it every single day, this woman understood Jesus' words precisely and responded accordingly. She says, yes, the children's food is theirs and the time for the dogs to eat is not yet still. The dogs, the pets of the house, eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table of grace. You see, God's grace is such that even before the fullness of time, he has shown it to the Gentiles, giving them the foretaste of what awaits in the future. She knows her unworthiness. She also knows her untimeliness as a Gentile. And yet she confidently rests on the faithful and merciful goodness of God. Such is heavenly wisdom. Such is that which flesh and blood has not revealed, but the Father who is in heaven. Such is true faith. And finally, true faith is an answered faith. The woman's faith is acknowledged by Christ and finally her request granted to her. Emphatically, Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Its greatness comes again, not from the woman herself, for we have seen how little she has to show for her. It comes from her unwavering confidence in the Lord, in the Son of the living God. It is a humble faith, faith that understands its dependence on God and so persists with God. It is, as we could call it, uh, 1 John 5.14 faith, where John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. By faith, this Canaanite woman stands alongside another Gentile, the centurion in Capernaum, together as a sweet foretaste of God's blessing to the nations after the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the glorification of Christ. This is the faith of this woman. And the, this morning, the good news is that it also is our faith. Those who were far off, the Gentiles, who had no way of knowing, no way of hearing, and yet we are the fulfillment of this foretaste that this woman experienced. The story of the Canaanite woman is our good news, brothers and sisters. 
And it is so in two ways as we close. It is uh, both an encouragement to us today and also a reminder. You see, the interesting thing about this passage is that whoever listened to it being told or even participated in it as it unfolded would have one and the same question. How could God's enemy approach Jesus? If Jesus is truly God and truly righteous, a God of Israel, how could God's enemy approach Jesus? Each listener, each witness would ask them this from uh, different motives, but the question would be the same. And the answer to that question, of course, was in the one this woman approached. It is one of those great reversals of the Bible that the Son of God becomes God's enemy on the cross so that God's enemies on earth would become his friends and more than that, his children. You see, to the Gentile audience back then and to uh, all of us today, this is incredibly encouraging. If you think that you are not worth of God's grace, of his salvation, that you're not good enough, maybe you've been carrying a load for a very long time. Maybe you've been wrestling with a relational problem, with your own personal sin, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and you, you just can't. You seem like this is too much. You start questioning your faith. You start questioning whether you actually know who this God is. If this is you, if there's something standing between you and Him, the encouragement comes in the form of invitation. You are invited to come to the cross as you are, to see him there, to see that Christ performed on behalf of sinners like you and me. You are invited to come to this in faith and repentance. Now a word of beautiful caution. As you come to him, as you receive your forgiveness, God is great a great god he does not merely change our status from unrighteous to righteous he does not merely change our name tag but when we come to him in faith and repentance even if we've been to church our whole lives even if we've known all that is that that's that we've read the bible many many times when we come in our struggles to the lord when we come with faith and repentance we have to understand that he's not only going to wipe our sins away legally. He is determined and he is committed to changing us, to transforming us into the likeness of his perfect son. That is the expectation with which you can come to him, that he calls you out of your darkness into his light in Christ, and then that he is determined to take you all the way. This is also good news in a form of rebuke. If you think that God loves you because you are good, or because you come to church, because you know your theology, because you uh, read Reformed literature, or maybe because you read your Bible every single morning, morning and evening, or because you come to Sunday school, whatever it may be, if that's your reason for feeling good before the Lord and thinking that that earns you a place at the Lord's table, think again. 
Such were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Such sentiment was not in common even, even among Jesus' disciples. Yet we earn God's favor by trusting Christ as goodness and righteousness on our behalf. Don't you see how that liberates us from prejudice and legalism? How it liberates us and invites us to praise the Lord with others and to respond in thanksgiving and loving obedience. There's a world of difference between doing things to get God's favor and doing things out of God's favor. And may the Lord grant us to discern the difference and to see it in our lives and to be those who walk in obedience out of gratitude, praise, and worship of the Lord who saved them and has lavished them with his unfailing grace. Let us do so then. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that as you are slow to condemn us, as you are slow to anger, as you are gentle, and yet as you are steadfast and faithful, Lord, we pray, in light of all of that, that you would uncover our hearts, expose our idols, expose things that we hold on to that are more uh, of, of greater treasure to us. Lord, that you would reveal ways in which we say we cling to our own self-righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ for us. And as you reveal that, as you uh, make us see, Lord, let us not despair in that. Let us not loathe ourselves. But we pray, pray and pray that as you open our eyes to our increasingly to our own wickedness, that you would also let us taste and see your grace and your power to change us, to transform us, to pull us out of that darkness and into your glorious light, to raise us up in godliness and righteousness and obedience to you. Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith like that of this woman that we would pursue you, we would be hungry for you, we would desire you, we would be desperate for you, that we would not rest and each and every day until we came, have come before your throne, have fellowship with you, have reasoned with you, have prayed and pleaded with you, and have received from the cup of the water of life. And so, Lord, let our cups then overflow with your grace to the extent that we ourselves go forth and share and testify of the goodness of our gracious God to the watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.